Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. Hello. Hello. And welcome. To our Thanksgiving special. <laughs> well, it's actually not really the Thanksgiving special because this is going to come out after Thanksgiving. But we are recording this before Thanksgiving because we gotta. I mean, you know. That's the schedule, baby. It's another week. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, we are uh, recording from New York. Live from New York. We are in my it, childhood bedroom. <laughs> yeah, we <laughs> It is Wednesday night. <laughs> yes, it is a Wednesday night. Um no, I'm excited. I decided that I would be telling you about freak accidents this week because why not? They're fun to talk about. I got to be so honest. It's like we have good conversation. They're unbelievable. And the ones that I have chosen for you today, honestly, like even though I've done a couple of these episodes, like these are maybe some of the most unbelievable ones that I've ever found. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's quite the buildup. I know that. And I don't take it lightly. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's get into it. Hopefully it's not too gruesome. Well, I kind of think that this is a little bit of a medical miracles episode, a little bit, okay. but also I have one about a hippo in here. So it's not just medical miracles. I love but there's, a hippo. Yeah, but there are a lot of them. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to just jump right in? Cause that's let's jump right in. But let me up. clarify that I do love a hippo when it's not killing people. Right. Exactly. That is the, a good copy. They, yeah. Hippos are like pissed off. Terrifying. All the time. Yes. For no reason. Yeah, they're they're one of the most dangerous animals yeah. in the world. On-site beef with humans. Yeah, and it's in the Zambezi, which we know and love. Oh, yeah. So we're going to take a, take a trip to back a, to the Zambezi. Yeah, it seems to be a hot spot. Yeah, if you are going to get attacked by a hippo, it most likely will happen on the Zambezi. I guess <laughs> because so. they are there and they are pissed. Mm. Anyway, but that's going to be one of our last stories. So I'm going to start off with... A, a different one okay i was going to give you a little intro sentence but honestly i don't even think i can so, okay all right for story number one we are going to be talking about a man named frothman murph which is one of the most unique names i've ever heard ever he was a 74 year old lumberjack from gatman mississippi who in 1984 almost got his head clean off with a chainsaw and lived to tell the tale I guess I did give you a sentence there to tell you what happens, but that I, was pretty good. It's a pretty good one, right? So Murph had been a lumberjack for nearly his whole life, and he liked to brag that he personally had cut down almost 2,000 acres of timber. But on May 26, 1984, he had a bit of an accident. He was alone in the woods cutting down trees like he had always done when he came upon a really big one. <laughs> he used, you know, as lumberjacks do, he used his chainsaw to make an angled cut to make sure it fell in the direction he intended it to fall in. And it did. But as it was falling, a massive branch from about 80 feet up on the tree came crashing down onto Murph. And this limb that had broken off of the tree and had fallen onto him had knocked him back about 10 feet, which caused him to fall into a ditch. As this tree that he had cut down was falling, it hit into another tree, and that one fell on top of Murph and broke his left leg and also crushed the bones in his left foot. Ew. And so after all of that happened, he passed out. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty painful. He was only unconscious for a minute, but when he came to, he could hear that his chainsaw was running and the motor was revving, like it would sound if it was being used to cut through something. And what it was cutting through 
was Frothman Murph's own neck. How do you come to that realization and like, you're like, I'm still alive, yeah, that, but it's cutting through my neck. That must be a very like high adrenaline moment. He probably didn't even feel it in that moment. Yeah. You know, or like not really the pain. You know, I'm sure he could feel the like vibration of it, but not like, <laughs> I don't know. I would hope not. Let's you, not dwell. Do you know? Sure. Let's you know what? Dwell. That's probably for the I'm best. I'm like, I'm already crawling. Sorry, this is going to be a tough one. Yeah. But um, so Frothman Murph wakes up to his chainsaw cutting through his own neck. And by the time he wakes up, the chainsaw had already cut through his trachea and esophagus and basically all the way down to his spine. Oh. It went through almost everything, including his jugular veins. The only thing attaching his head to his body was his spine and a little bit of tissue on the back of his neck and his carotid arteries. But that was it. Truly, the whole front half of his neck, maybe more than half, was like cut through. Oh my god. Yeah. And as you might expect... This pissed Frothman Murph off. Uh, I don't know if I would imagine that. <laughs> I know. It's, it's kind of like a... just sheer terror. <laughs> well, absolutely. But I just imagined like a really angry lumberjack just like getting pissed oh, about like a paper cut. <laughs> yeah, or like a, like a little splinter or something. And he's like, God dang it. It's like, oh, what now? Yeah, exactly. No, he was angry because, you know, his neck was getting cut. So he threw his chainsaw as far as he could and started to try to get to his feet. But if you remember, his left leg and foot was basically crushed, and his head was hanging on by quite literally a thread. The thread being his carotid artery. Yes, and his spine. But he did manage to get up, and when he did that, he had to hold his head to his body with one hand. Because all of the muscles in his neck that would do that for him had been cut through. So the only thing keeping his head to his body was his hand holding it. Isn't that horrifying? Yeah, I'm like imagining it just like flopping back. It would. If he, he didn't hold it, it would do that. Uh, no, I'm just, <laughs> just thinking of like the headless horseman uh, from Harry Potter. No, I was I was saying this to my sister earlier. It's like nearly headless Nick. That's like, what I'm... Come to life. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. So as horrifying and painful as this sounds, it was to Frothman <laughs> Murph. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah, I know. In that moment, Frothman had the thought that he'd be quote unquote going somewhere else, meaning like he's going to die. He started hopping on the one good foot and leg he had left. His left leg was in excruciating pain, but he said he couldn't afford to have it not work for him. So in that moment, he hobbled along with it. He said, quote, I made that thing walk whether it wanted to or not. Amen. So he continued to hop out of the woods and back to his truck. But on his way, he noticed that the blood coming out of his neck was streaming out and not squirting out, which gave him a little hope, actually, because it seemed like he would have a chance to survive. Because when I think about, like, an artery getting cut, I think about, like, blood spurting out rather than just, like, pouring out. And so oh, he, I didn't know that. he noticed that his blood coming out of his neck wasn't, like, spurting like a heartbeat. It was, like, you know... Sorry if anyone's very squeamish. This is a lot yeah, of talking about blood of coming blood. out. But the blood that was coming out of his neck started to flow down into his windpipe. And this is no. really, no. this is nasty. I'm no. sorry. This is a bit of a warning. This is going to get nasty for a few seconds. So several times on his way back to his truck, which was about 75 feet away, he needed to lean over and hold his head back so the blood could drain out of his windpipe. That way he could breathe. So imagine oh my God. like a cup being filled up with water and he had to like tip his head back and pour the water out so that he could breathe. <laughs> like 
like a teapot but like a teapot but instead of it, it is like a teapot oh my but instead God, of water so it's gross. his blood and his windpipe oh dude. i'm so sorry i'm sorry for making the teapot reference i mean that was more what i was looking for when i said cup frothman needs an er now immediately yeah and he supposedly had to do that several times like he had to empty out his esophagus so he's just like losing cups of blood like pretty much yeah but finally he did make it back to his truck and he managed to drive himself to a neighbor's house. And luckily for Frothman, this neighbor was outside in his yard as he pulled up. So he pulled in and got out of his truck and hopped over to his neighbor, who I can only imagine was... Terrified. Beyond horrified. Yeah, terrified. It wasn't hard to tell that Frothman needed to get to the hospital immediately. So he loaded him into his car and they raced to the hospital. The Gilmore Memorial Hospital was about 20 miles away. It was a rural Mississippi hospital in the town of Emory, which only had a population of about 7,000 people. So they were kind of in the middle of nowhere, which is never where you want an emergency to happen. But it did. Once Frothman and his neighbor made it inside the hospital, the staff inside knew immediately that they were not equipped to handle this magnitude of a case because they're just like a little rural hospital. Like they're not like mm -hmm. a big medical center. So they did what they could to stabilize Frothman and then they loaded him into an ambulance to head off to a different hospital. They were taking him to the North Mississippi Medical Center, which was about 30 miles from where they were in Tupelo, Tupelo, I think Tupelo. But imagine he had to drive 50 miles to get to a hospital. That would really be able to treat him. Yes. How did they stabilize him? I don't know. They probably give him blood and they pressure. must have. They I had to have given him blood. Yeah. And somehow he did survive this ambulance trip. It's officially time to kickstart your holiday shopping, but there's no cause for panic. Uncommon Goods is here to make your holiday shopping stress-free by scouring the globe for the most remarkable and truly unique gifts for everyone on your list. Whether you're shopping for mom, dad, teenagers, in-laws, or your best friends, Uncommon Goods knows exactly what they want. I recently came across a deluxe hot sauce making kit, and as someone who loves spice, that sounds like a really fun project. I've also spent a lot of time looking through their kitchen gadget section, which is plentiful because I have so many people in my life who love to cook. Uncommon Goods looks for products that are high quality, unique, and often handmade or made in the U.S. From art and jewelry to kitchen, home, and bar, Uncommon Goods has something for everyone. Not the same lackluster gifts you could find just anywhere. To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash not today. That's uncommongoods.com slash not today for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, we're all out of the ordinary. Dr. Roger Lowry, a surgeon at the hospital who tended to Frothman, said, You shouldn't be able to cut your own head off and drive out of the woods. You ought to bleed to death in two or three minutes. It could have happened to someone out here in the parking lot of the hospital and they would have died. He also added in an interview with the Chicago Tribune, quote, If I cut someone like that in the operating room and left him open, he could have died in five minutes. And that's with one jugular vein. Mr. Murph had four jugular veins cut. That is a medical miracle. I know. Four? Yes. That's insane. Yeah. I don't know. It must have been because he was in good shape. He, well, he must be considering he was a, a lumberjack. lumberjack, but he was 74 years old. Oh, I thought you said 47. No, 74. He's 74? Yeah, he's an old man. Oh my God. He's still yeah. out cutting trees? Oh yeah. He just loves it. It was his life. Yeah, but I was thinking, um, you remember 
the ultra marathon runner. Uh, it was like Balangi. Danelle I think it was Danelle. Yeah. Yeah. And she like bled out for days. Yeah. But because she was literally in, shape. in ultra marathon shape. Right. She'd run like fucking 50 miles. Didn't Since she, these people are insane. She shattered her pelvis or something. Yeah. Was but she it, the point too? was is she was oh, able yeah. to survive because she's because, yeah. in such great shape. Yeah, absolutely. He, I mean, he had to have been in good shape, even though he was 74, because you can't be in bad shape and be a lumberjack. Yeah. So I'm sure that helped. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I guess uh, we're not medical people. No. We're not a medical. Oh, God, no. But um, I just don't know what it means to cut a jugular vein. It sounds bad, but Yeah, it's definitely bad? bad. I mean, it's less bad than cutting a carotid artery. I know that much, but it is still very bad. Mm. I mean, this doctor said he should have bled out in like five minutes, and he was alive for much longer than five minutes yeah had to be yes it was from the time of the accident to the time he made it to the north mississippi hospital it had been about two hours yeah so the surgeons in that new hospital were trying to put him back together again aka humpty humpty dumpty humpty 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 sorry (laughs) which was not an easy task it wasn't a clean cut through his neck it was a very jagged chainsaw cut And on top of that, he had sawdust embedded in his wounds, which led to several infections. Oh, your neck is infected? Yeah. It's a chainsaw for cutting down big, big trees. It's got sawdust and stuff. Sterile. Yeah, super, super sterile. Altogether, it took six surgeries to put Frothman back together. The doctors did a really stellar job because apart from some nerve damage that made it difficult for him to swallow, he basically made a full recovery. That is insane. I know. The only thing that's wrong with you is nerve damage? Yeah, just a, just a little bit of nerve damage. He can't really swallow very well, but that's really it. Yeah, I mean, he's lucky. Six that's surgeries, That's an understatement. Though. Seven months after the accident, he was able to speak and breathe normally again, and he lived another 18 years. He made it all the way to 92 years old. It's a good run. Yeah. However, those 18 years weren't the best of his life. His wife had died in October in the same year he had his accident. And after she died, he started having pretty major financial problems. But he loved playing his guitar and continued to do so until his death. And according to him, music was his third love right behind Jesus and Chainsaws. Wow. Which made me laugh so hard when I read that because his wife was not in that list. In the top three. (laughs) Music was his third love behind Jesus and chainsaws. You know, Not I Gladys. guess he knew it. He had. <laughs> she was I so mean, she was mean. Yeah, I was just about to say, oh, that I mean, that's so horrible that his wife died that year. Like, I know do you no, really, that really need is. more than that to happen. But maybe it was a good thing. No, God, no. I'm sure she was I a hope, lovely woman. But I, I just not. laughed. Yeah. I just laughed at the fact that his three loves of his life were Jesus, chainsaws, and music, and not his wife. <laughs> anyway. I mean, yeah. He never, She's number four. Yeah. He never gave up his chainsaw. He continued cutting down trees even after he almost cut his own head off. And he, he did eventually pass away in January of 2003 at the age of 92. But that is the story of Frothman Murph and his freak accident the fact that he kept cutting trees down is nuts i know he was like yeah this is my job and i love it well he loves chainsaws it's his second love behind jesus so hard to beat out jesus exactly so why don't we move on to story number two yes we're going to be talking about matthew lowe who was dragged through a five inch hole huh yeah so in december of 2008 matthew lowe 
then in his 20s was a plate welder at the Compass Engineering Factory in Barnsley, England. Yes, that is how big five inches is. He just held up Bro, his hand. this is like make a C with your hand? Yeah, well, they, like said, they said it was about like a CD case, like the size of a CD case. Dude. Yeah. He lived a simple life with his then-girlfriend Kim Swift and their daughter Evie. At work, he was in charge of running a machine that worked on heavy steel beams. When one fateful afternoon, Matthew was dragged through a small hole in the machine. He was wearing like loose overalls and his overalls got caught in the machine and it dragged him through and then spat him out on the other side. Wow. Mm-hmm. The hole was only about five inches in diameter. I saw somewhere that like his head went through a section that was just a little bit bigger than that because his skull wasn't completely crushed, but like his body was. Yeah, it was like his shoulders, dude. Yeah. No, he was crushed. Yeah. His hand went first, and when the machine got to the middle of his arm, Matthew said he heard a terrifying snapping sound. Oh. But the machine wasn't done. It just kept pulling him in. He later explained, when the machine dragged me through, I just relaxed because I knew I couldn't do anything, and I thought that that was the end for me. Anyone would assume that that would be your last moments, seeing you're going to get pulled through a machine with a hole that was five inches in diameter. I mean, this has got to be the one of the worst ways to die. Oh my God, that would be terrifying. He made it. But I mean, somehow he actually was kind of relaxed about it. Like he was like, I just relaxed my body because there was nothing I could do. I don't know how you do that. I don't either. Please. I'd be like stiff as a board. Yeah. The machine dragged his entire body through the hole and then spat him out on the other side, all bloodied and broken. Matthew's co-workers, who saw everything, immediately called 911, and miraculously, he was able to keep breathing long enough to get him to the hospital. He later said, quote, It crushed my body, ripped my clothes to shreds, and literally spat me out at the other end, but I was still alive. I don't know how, but I didn't lose consciousness. I just couldn't see for a while afterwards. Oof. Doctors worked on his many injuries, which included a shattered pelvis, his back broken in two spots, fractured hips, ribs, and right arm, and to make things worse, the accident also ruptured his stomach and bowel. How painful that must have been. Awful. Awful. There's not enough pain meds in the world. Yeah, I mean, he needs to be on, like, morphine times 10. Absolutely. There was honestly no reason Matthew was still alive. Doctors told his girlfriend Kim that she should expect the worst. But after many surgeries and a bunch of metal plates being put in his body, he pulled through. 18 months after the accident and painful recovery, Matthew returned to work at the same company and retrained as a site supervisor. So at least he's no longer working with the machine that almost killed him, but he did work at the same company. Which, I mean, makes sense. I mean, it's his job. It's his livelihood. And it is good that he didn't just go back to the same machine. Right. That's at least a positive thing. But I feel like as his girlfriend, you'd be like, there is no fucking way absolutely that you are not. doing the same job. Oh, my God. He. I hope he got a raise. I hope that was a, a bump up in his career. Yeah, you know? they'd be like, uh, oops. Yeah, bonus. sorry. Yeah. Right. He later talked about how the incident altered his life for good. He stressed the importance of following job safety rules and definitely learned from his mistakes. In early June of 2011, he appeared in court over alleged health and safety breaches at Compass Engineering. Also present in court were the machine's German installers, Kaltenbach, 
and magistrates heard the graphic details of Matthew's injuries and how there was no guard on the steer processing machine, which was a big problem. The machine was computer operated and had very dangerous moving parts, so it absolutely should have had a safety thing on it, but there was nothing. Okay, so there was like there should have been an automatic safety shut off. Yes, yeah, or, or like a, somebody a guard. watching it. There should have been like a safety guard or like an automatic shut off or something. Like there just was no safety measure in place, and it was a computer automated machine. So even though he was getting pulled through, it wasn't like someone could flip a switch and just like really? stop it. Well, I'm sure they could on like a computer, but like it wasn't someone running the machine. It was just a computer. Yeah. So it didn't know that he was going through it. You know, like that's a problem. You got to have an emergency shutoff. Yeah. So that's why they were going to court because it's like very dangerous. And Sheffield Crown Court fined Compass Engineering 75,000 pounds and Kaltenbach 30,000 pounds on top of them spending an additional 55,000 on safety features for the machine following the accident. Other than the 55,000, I think those went to Matthew Lowe. It's not enough. I know. It's a lot. Dude, like, it, it should be in the millions. It should be a lot. Yeah. You would yeah. think that kind of a an injury... You'd get millions for that, right? Oh, yeah. You should. But this is in England. Yes. So they have different laws. But if this was in the U.S., this would be like tens of millions. It'd be a lot more than 75000 According to Judge Robert Moore, quote, this was a very foreseeable accident, and it only was a matter of time before it or something like it occurred. Lowe endured several surgeries to repair his body. He also suffered a setback in his mental health that to him came as a bit of a shock. So he was, I think, depressed and stuff after the accident. How can you which, not be? Yeah, I know. How, that's a major recovery that he had to go through. He said he still has problems with his right arm and his left hip, but that is not as bad as being told he might not make it. He said, I still can't believe I'm here. The thought of how close I came to death still haunts me. Matthew is still apparently working for Compass Engineering, and he holds the Guinness World Record for, quote, the smallest gap through which a human body has passed and emerged alive. Hey, at least they instead of payment, they just give him the world record. <laughs> they just have someone from Guinness World Records come and take his picture. <laughs> <laughs> and to support Low, we as a company have brought Guinness World Records here. Congratulations. You want to do it again? Yeah, right. <laughs> it that's funny to think about though. Like Guinness World Records, did they have that as a section before this happened? Or is it like they just heard about his story and they were like yeah, um, you're the first person who has ever passed through the smallest gap, and you Here live. Here you go. So congratulations, you're in the book. Uh, there's got to be some crazy people who are like the people who fit in boxes at Oh, like, like contortionists? Yeah, contortionists that will go through pipes. That's true, yeah. That probably was a, a section then, like fitting yeah. your body. He's kind of like an octopus. <laughs> I'm just thinking out loud here, but like... I just I mean, am picturing like an octopus squeezing through like a really tiny crack because they squeeze through things. But anyway, that is Matthew Lowe's story. Isn't yeah. that insane? Yeah, I mean, it's nuts. He's like an octopus. He really is. Anyway, let's move on to story number three. This also happened in 2008 because the last one did. Terrible uh, year. A terrible year for freak accidents, guys. A woman named Stacy Perez was driving her car down the street in Hillsborough, Texas, when she got into a terrible car accident. She fell unconscious during the crash, but when she woke up, she saw her skin had been ripped from her arms and there was glass everywhere from her shattered windshield. A dump truck had run a red light and hit her at a very high speed. 
But actually, Stacy wasn't the one in such bad shape when compared to her son in the back seat. Her nine-year-old son, Jordan, was still strapped into his seat, but it seemed as if nothing was holding up his head when she turned around and looked at him. She said, quote, I remember getting out of the car and looking over at him and seeing how his head had just fallen down. Jordan Taylor had been buckled in his seat, but the precaution did not protect him from an internal decapitation. In other words, the force of the impact had shoved his skull forward an inch, separating it from his spine. I don't like that. That's, oh my God. Yeah, technically his neck was still intact, but it was as if his head had been removed from his body, at least in a skeletal way. Please tell me he survives. I mean, the, this yeah. is, this, okay, good. But this is an injury that we've talked about before, and mm -hmm. it's like, nobody survives. Yeah, that's what the doctor said. Almost nobody survives internal decapitation, but thankfully he did. Stacy said, quote, At that point, I saw my arm, but I didn't care because I was screaming for Jordan and I didn't get a response. Dr. Richard Roberts, the pediatric neurosurgeon who treated Jordan at Cook Children's Medical Center in Fort Worth, said that his case was the first time he had ever seen someone in that condition survive. Thankfully, Jordan's spinal cord remained intact, but his skull did separate from his neck. All of the connective tissue that essentially keeps your head connected to your neck was destroyed. This is something that almost no one survives. Out of every 100 cases of internal decapitation, you might have one or two people who make it. Jordan just so happened to be one of the lucky ones and has been referred to as a medical miracle. Jordan's doctor said, we needed to make sure that Jordan was stabilized, so we first put him into a halo. It's a carbon fiber ring that is screwed to his skull and then attached to a vest. And then we took him to surgery. We wound up putting a titanium plate on the back of his skull and attaching that by screws and rods to his neck to keep him connected. Stacy Perez, who also sustained some type of significant injuries, said she wasn't told about the extent of her son's injuries until about a week later, which is probably for the best. Yeah. You know, while you're also battling injuries of your own, to hear that your son is internally decapitated probably isn't the best thing for your recovery. I guess if she was stable, they maybe should have told her, but yeah. if she wasn't, I get it. True. But who am I to judge? I'm not a doctor. No, I don't do yeah. do these things as I'm long sure... as they tell her eventually, I guess. Yeah, I'm sure it was a tough call either way, but they ended up not telling her until a week later. Yeah, it seems like a long time. It does. It does seem like a long time. Several sports stars, including Dallas Cowboys quarterback Tony Romo, had visited Jordan in the hospital, so that's nice. But... Although Jordan did survive, for those who do survive a kind of injury like that, usually a lifetime of paralysis is ahead of them. But after a miraculous recovery that his doctors cannot even explain, he was deemed well enough to be released three months after the accident. And after he was discharged, Jordan walked out of the hospital doors. Wow. Three I months. I mean, that's... That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, this is very much a miracle. I know. One or two out of every 100 survives mm -hmm. and, and most people do, yeah. are paralyzed and yep. he walks out. Mm -hmm. Wow. Pretty cool. That dump truck driver is very lucky. Yes, he is. Jordan started in a wheelchair, then a walker, then he was walking. At first, he wasn't talking at all and they thought he would have brain damage and he surprised everyone by regaining all of his speech and walking again. Stacy said, I would have accepted anything as long as he was alive. I just wanted him to live. Every time he did something better, I was so happy. It was like icing on the cake. 
First he talked, then he walked, then no brain damage. It was just better news as time moved on. His doctor said, as far as I'm concerned, he had a full recovery. He is neurologically intact. He walks. That's one of the biggest things. He isn't weak and is active. It's amazing. He also has youth on his side. Being young, he has better tissue than someone who is 60 or 70. So that's probably a big contributing factor as to why he recovered so well. But still, I mean, I'll take it. He was nine years old. Yeah, he was young. It's crazy. Yeah, I'm just, uh, this is, wow. It's just such a great outcome, like compared to like what happened. You can't hope for a better outcome than that. Yeah, I don't think it gets better. No, that's that's the peak of those kinds of recoveries. Yeah. Did he like get back to playing sports or something? I don't know what he did, but... I, I actually don't know what happened to him after the fact, but he walked out of the hospital three months later and his doctor said, as far as I'm concerned, he made a full recovery. And they yeah, he said he was active. So I would assume. That's so crazy. You're like yeah. playing baseball against the kid who got decapitated. Yeah. He's like, you think he's nervous about the game? No. I think he's probably good. I mean, yeah. Try and scare him after this. Right. But anyway, that is his story. Why don't we move on to number four? Because this one is equally as unbelievable. We're going to be talking about Dr. Leonard Rogozov, who is a doctor who had to do something. And I'm not going to say it, even though I was giving a sentence at the beginning of all of these. I'm going to wait. He's going to do something. He's going to do. This is a doctor and he's going to do something. Yeah. Yeah. All and right. You can't say it. Leonid Ivanovich Rogozov was a Soviet general practitioner. After graduating in 1959 as a general practitioner, he started clinical training to specialize in surgery. In September of 1960, at the age of 26, he interrupted his training and joined the 6th Soviet Antarctic Expedition as a medical doctor. In the middle of the 20th century, Russia began aggressively exploring and conducting research in Antarctica, and in 1960, they sent an expedition to construct a base known as Novolazarevskaya. Sorry? You did not get that right. No, I did not. And I'm sorry, but I'm not going to try saying it again. <laughs> That's what we've got. That's fair. The team completed its construction in nine weeks and then had to wait out the winter until the ice thawed so they could be brought back home. So they basically just had to hunker down for the winter and they couldn't They leave. couldn't leave. They could not leave. Because the team of 13 men were basically stranded at this base, they brought along Dr. Rogozov to ensure the crew could be treated for any illnesses or injuries should something arise. But ironically, it would be Dr. Rogozov who was the one in need of assistance. On the morning of April 29, 1961, Rogozov experienced general weakness, nausea, a moderate fever, and later pain in the lower right portion of his abdomen appendectomy so whenever anyone says they have pain in their lower right portion of their abdomen my whole body clenches because even though i've never had appendicitis my sister did right in the middle of magic kingdom and disney world and that was not fun for her so i'm very aware what lower right stomach pain could mean for a person mm -hmm. and, and i'm I sure i have been to the er yeah because right. i thought but it wasn't. Exactly. And I'm sure that Dr. Rogozov, who was a trained general practitioner and specializing in surgery, knew what that meant. So by April 30th, as his condition got worse, Dr. Rogozov diagnosed himself with appendicitis. Appendicitis is inflammation of the appendix that can cause severe pain and even death if left untreated. 
Mirny, the nearest Soviet research station, was more than 1,000 miles away from their base, and they didn't have an aircraft available to them. And even if they did, severe blizzard conditions prevented the aircraft from landing, which meant Rogozov had no option but to perform an operation on himself. I thought somebody else was going to have to do it. No. Nope. He was going to have to give him pointers. I think that this one's worse, to be honest. If he like was telling someone how to do it, that feels less bad than him doing it to himself. But also, both are bad, obviously. Both are bad. Both are so bad. At least bad. he knows what he's doing. Exactly. That's my. That's what I was thinking. Like, I'm sure he had the thought, like, can I talk someone through it? But you can't trust anyone to Yeah, you can't to be actually... trusting these bitches out here. Yeah, they're all just like random men who don't know how to do surgery. So like, I wouldn't trust them as far as no. I could throw them. And you can't throw them. And I can't throw them. So Rogozov's operation started at two local time on May 1st, I think probably 2 p.m. or 2 a.m. I don't know, two. Does it matter? Doesn't matter. It happened on a day at a time. He re- <laughs> It happened. <laughs> it, it did happen. He recruited the team meteorologist and the team driver to be his two medical assistants to hold open his abdominal incision and to hold a mirror to better visualize his surgical field. Rogozov lay in a semi-reclining position, half turned to his left side. A solution of 0.5% Novocaine was used for local anesthesia of the abdominal wall. Rogozov made a 10 to 12 centimeter incision of the abdominal wall, but while opening the peritoneum, he accidentally cut the cecum, which is considered to be the beginning of the large intestine. So he, I guess, sliced his large intestine, kind of. And he had to stitch it back up. Then he exposed his appendix. According to his report, the appendix was found to have a dark stain at its base, and Rogozov estimated it would have burst within the day if he didn't do surgery that day. He probably would have died, because if it bursts, like... You're that's way done. well i mean you're not done if like you're in the hospital and there's like a team of medical people like it's it's definitely a much more dangerous situation but you can come back from it but if he's the only person who can do the thing do the thing he's gonna die if that happens yeah so yeah after about 30 to 40 minutes into the operation the pain and fatigue was excruciating causing him to experience vertigo and he needed to take several pauses with his abdomen wide open yeah, I'm, he only took Novocaine. Yes. Topically. Yeah. That's it. Yes. And I find it kind of funny that it took 30 to 40 minutes for him to start feeling extreme pain. Like That's he's insane. literally cutting into himself. But he's. They yeah, have they, morphine? I don't know. Anything? I don't know. Does he take like an aspirin? I don't know. <laughs> I would hope. Like so, any kind of painkiller? <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, about 30 to 40 minutes into the surgery, he had to like take a couple breaks because it was too much. I wouldn't have made it past the first cut. Dude, this is metal. I was thinking that. Like, this is so metal. Nevertheless, he continued, and after only two hours, he removed his appendix and stitched himself back up. No big deal. No big deal. Two hours. Whatever. After only four days, Dr. Rogozov's bowel function returned to normal. After five days, his fever was gone. And after eight days, his stitches were removed. And two weeks later, he was back to performing work as normal on the base. That's so nuts. He took his own appendix out, and two weeks later, it's fine. Yep, back to normal. All good. That's wild. Could you imagine being the two guys who have to hold his stomach open? No. And they the had to literally hold open his abdominal cavity 
and hold a mirror so that he could see what he was cutting. Also, I was wondering if he's looking at it through a mirror, like, is he having to do it kind of backwards too? Yeah, I don't know. I, that's that's tricky. I guess, it, you know, you can still recognize the shapes of things. Totally. But, but I'm just thinking about like myself, like curling my hair in the mirror is kind of difficult <laughs> for me. Like, yeah, I mean. You're kind of doing things backward a little bit. Right. I don't think I could cut my own hair. So no, it's yeah, hard. this is nuts. Yeah. The self-surgery was photographed by his colleagues, and in 1961, he was awarded the Order of the Red Banner of Labor. The incident resulted in a change of policy, and thereafter, extensive health checks were mandatory for personnel to be deployed on such expeditions. In September of 1966, he published a dissertation titled Resection of the Esophagus for Treating Esophageal Cancer. He later worked as a doctor in various hospitals. And from 1986 to 2000, he served as the head of the surgery department of St. Petersburg Research Institute for tubecular pulmonology. Sweet. That's kind of cool that he was the head of surgery. His top dog. I mean, it kind of makes sense. That's a really metal story to be like, oh yeah, our head of surgery. You're like an intern coming in and you learn that your head of surgery performed an appendectomy on himself. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I guess that's the line you lead with like when you're trying to get somebody to feel comfortable about a surgery like yeah. dude he, i did it on myself he yeah <laughs> he didn't act <laughs> oh almost there he didn't have me on himself yeah yeah on <laughs> himself on himself you get what i mean yes i can't say it today That's i can't okay. do it the thing we've been talking about he did it he did it you he, should feel he safe did a thing on one day in in at some time i would imagine that those interns are terrified of that man i would be terrified of him yeah, I mean, it's and he's Russian, so it's exactly terrifying. Vodka. But anyway, that is his story. He did end up dying in 2000 at age 66 in, St. in St. Petersburg, Russia from lung cancer. But he survived the appendectomy he did on himself. So that's pretty cool. Anyway, on to number five. We're going to be talking about Paul Templer. In 1996, he was 28 years old and conducting tours in Zimbabwe. Paul Templer had recently returned to the African bush country and fell in love with the wildlife, the flora, the fauna, the great outdoors, the space, just everything about it. He said he was at home. He said Zimbabwe's guide certification program was rigorous and there was a lot of pride among the guides who passed. He reveled in showing tourists the area's majestic wildlife, including the water-loving, very territorial, hippos. He said, life was really, really good until one day I had a really bad day at the office. March 9th, 1996, a Saturday, Paul Templer learned a good friend who was to lead a canoe safari down the Zambezi River had malaria. He agreed to take his friend's place. He said, I loved that stretch of river. It was an area I knew like the back of my hand. The expedition consisted of six safari clients, four Air France crew members, and a couple from Germany, three apprentice guides plus Paul. They had three canoes, clients in the first two seats and a guide in the back, then one apprentice guide in the one-person safety kayak. And down the famed Zambezi they went. Things were going the way they were supposed to go, and everyone was having a pretty good time. Eventually, they came across a pod of about a dozen hippos, which was not unexpected on the Zambezi. They weren't alarmed at first, as they were a safe distance away, but they were getting closer, and Paul was trying to take evasive action to get them away from the hippos. 
The idea was, let's just paddle safely around them. Paul's canoe led the way, with the other two canoes and kayak to follow. He pulled into a little channel, waiting on the others, but the third canoe had fallen back from the group and was off the planned course. He wasn't sure how that had happened, but it was not good that it did. Suddenly, there was a very big thud, and he saw the canoe, the back of the canoe, catapult into the air. And Evans, the other guide who was in the canoe that had been shot in the air, was catapulted out of the canoe and into the water. He got shot out. He got shot out and he was in the water. The clients managed to remain in the canoe somehow, but this guide was in the water with the hippos. Evans was in the water and the current began washing him toward a mama hippo and her calf 150 meters or 490 feet away. So Paul said he had to get him out very quickly. He didn't have time to drop off his clients. So he yelled to Ben, one of the other guides, to retrieve the clients who were in the canoe that had been attacked. Ben got the clients to safety on a rock in the middle of the river that the hippos couldn't climb. Meanwhile, Paul turned his canoe around to get Evans. The plan was to pull alongside him and to pull him into his canoe. He said, I was paddling toward him, getting closer, and I saw this bow wave come toward me. If you've ever seen any of those old movies with a torpedo coming toward a ship, it was kind of like that. I knew it was either a hippo or a really large crocodile coming at me. But I also knew that if I slapped my blade of my paddle on the water, that's really loud, and the percussion underwater seemed to turn the animal away. So he slapped the water, and as it was supposed to do, the torpedo wave stopped. So the hippo just got scared. I guess, yeah, he just slapped the water with his paddle and the hippo stopped coming at him. That's so crazy. They're huge. They're massive. They're scared of sound. I guess, yeah. Paul was getting closer to Evans, but they were also getting closer to the female hippo and her calf. Paul illustrated the scene, saying, I'm leaning over. It's kind of like a made-for-Hollywood movie. Evans is reaching up. Our fingers almost touched. And then the water between us just erupted. It happened so fast, I didn't see a thing. What happened next was a nightmare. He said, my world went dark and strangely quiet. Paul said it took him a few seconds to figure out what was going on. From the waist down, he could feel the water. But from his waist up, it was different. He said he was warm, and it wasn't wet like the river, but it wasn't dry either. And it was just incredible pressure on his lower back. He tried to move around, but he couldn't. He said, I realized I was up to my waist down a hippo's throat. It tried to eat him. It tried to swallow him, yeah. He was up to his waist. Like a whale. In a hippo's throat, yeah. There's a good reason a fully grown hippopotamus can fit a large portion of a fully grown adult in its mouth. Hippos can grow up to 16.5 feet or 5 meters, 5.2 feet tall, and weigh up to 4.5 tons. It's a car. Yeah. It's a living car. Yes. They sport enormous mouths and can open their strong jaws to 150 degrees. Their teeth are even more frightening. Their molars are used for eating plants, but their sharp canines, which might reach to 20 inches or 51 centimeters, are for defense and fighting. Their bite is almost three times stronger than that of a lion. One bite from a hippo can possibly cut a human body in half. And Paul was halfway down a hippo's throat. Hippos are very territorial and might aggressively attack any animal encroaching on their territory, including hyenas, lions, and crocodiles. They also kill people. 
Many internet sources say around 500 people a year, in fact, but the exact figure is still uncertain because some attacks and deaths come in very remote regions and don't get reported. So it might be more than 500. Probably is. Most of the attacks happen in the water, but because hippos raid crops on farms, they are also attacks on people trying to protect their crops. There are also some tourists, but largely the attacks are happening to local residents. Yeah, I mean, how do you defend your crop from a hippo? You need like an AK. Paul said, I'm guessing I was wedged so far down its throat, it must have been uncomfortable because he spat me out. So I burst to the surface, sucked a lungful of fresh air, and then came face to face with Evans, the guide who I was trying to rescue, and I said, we've got to get out of here. But Evans was in serious trouble. Paul started swimming back for him, and he said, I was just moving in for your classic lifesaver hold, when wham, I got hit from below. So once again, I'm up to my waist, down the hippo's throat, but this time my legs were trapped, but my hands were free. He tried to go for his gun, but he was being thrashed around so much he couldn't grab it. The hippo, which turned out to be an older, aggressive male, spat Paul out a second time. This time, when he came to the surface, he looked around and saw no sign of Evans. Paul assumed Evans had been rescued, so then he tried to escape himself. He said, I'm making pretty good progress and I'm swimming along there and I come up for a stroke and I look under my arm, and until my dying day, I'll remember this. There's this hippo charging in toward me with its mouth wide open, bearing in before he scores a direct hit. This time, Paul was sideways in the hippo's mouth, his legs dangling out one side of its mouth, shoulders and head on the other side of its mouth. And then the hippo just went berserk. When hippos are fighting, the way they fight is to try to tear apart and destroy whatever they're attacking. So Paul said, for me, fortunately, everything was happening in slow motion. So when he would go underwater, he would hold his breath. And when he was on the surface, he would take a deep breath and he would try to hold onto the tusks that were boring through him to try to stop from being ripped apart. Yeah, I mean, there's just really not much you can do. No. Other than just try and keep air in your lungs. Yeah. Paul said one of the clients watching the horror later described it like a vicious dog trying to rip apart a rag doll. He figures the whole attack took about three and a half minutes. So this all happened- That's a long time. I was going to say it happened very fast, but if you think about being attacked nonstop for three and a half minutes, that is a very long time. <laughs> yeah, by a hippo. Yeah, terrifying. Meanwhile, apprentice guide Mac in the safety kayak, showing incredible bravery, risking his life to save Paul's, pulled Paul into his boat. Paul managed to grab a handle on the kayak and Mac dragged him to relative safety on this rock that they were all taking refuge on. On the rock in the Zambezi, Paul asked Mac where Evans was and Mac said, he's gone, man, he's just gone. Paul knew he needed to come up with a plan to get them off of the rock and to the riverbank, but he said, first, I needed to settle myself down. <laughs> yeah, take yeah a, a little bit. Take, take a, a moment. Take a second to breathe, Paul. I think you deserve it. Wait, so he's fine paul is i mean as fine as you can be for just being thrashed around for three minutes three minutes by a hippo but it didn't like break anything i just thought his back would be broken it's like thrashing him at the middle yeah no he was not in good shape his he said his left foot was especially bad it looked as if someone had tried to beat a hole through it with a hammer he couldn't move his arms one arm from his elbow down was crushed to a pulp so he was Oof. not in good in good condition 
He assessed the situation. One man was missing. The first aid kit, radio, and gun were all gone. He had six scared clients, two canoes, and one paddle left, and his own body was shattered. Blood was bubbling out of his mouth, and they realized that his lung was also punctured. Mac rolled Paul over and could see a gaping hole in his back and plugged it with saran wrap from a plate of snacks they had. That's very resourceful. resourceful. Yeah, that's very quick thinking. Paul made the call. No matter the risk, they had to get off the rock. He was loaded into a canoe, and as they paddled, the hippo kept bumping into the canoe. He went from being terrified to calm on the ride back for some reason. He said he was calm. I don't know how you're calm in that situation. Oh, I thought you meant the hippo. No, I mean Paul. I guess after you got thrashed around for three minutes, anything is peaceful? Yeah, there's a certain level of acceptance, I guess. I don't know. And he also is a a guide, so I'm sure he knows about hippos and like what to expect. And also he's probably losing a lot of blood. That too. I'm sure it was a lot of blood loss as well. He described a, quote, profound spiritual experience in which he had this incredible sense of peace and realization. This was my moment of choice. Like, do I go or do I stay? Do I close my eyes and drift off or do I fight my way through this and stick around? I chose to stick around. And as soon as I made that choice, it was more pain than I could ever imagine. It was so intense, I thought I was going to die. And when I didn't, I kind of wished I would. So I guess his body was almost in a state of like shock i mean that makes sense on the edge yeah but he he decided he wanted to live and then he felt all the pain that's crazy yeah ben and paul made it out of the river but without finding evan his body was found three days later they concluded he had drowned because he didn't have any signs of animal attack on him once out of the river it took eight hours to drive paul to the nearest hospital In a month's time, he had several major surgeries. He thought he would lose one leg or both arms, and his surgeons didn't think that he would live. But not only did the surgeon save Paul's life, he saved his legs and one arm. The other arm, however, was beyond salvation. But, I mean, still, to think that you're one gonna die or two, lose all of your limbs, and then you only manage to lose one, like, that's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, the batting average is pretty decent here. You got your life, your leg, and your arm. Yep. Which arm was it? Was it his, like, non-dominant arm? I hope. I don't know which one, but he got to keep one of them. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. He realized that in the ICU when he woke up, he was feeling for his left hand, and it was gone. Okay, so it was left. He said, I just remember feeling devastated. I spent my whole life being active, and it was almost more than I could bear. But then he was flooded with relief to realize his right arm and legs had been saved. For the next month, he was emotionally all over the map. He got physical and occupational therapy in in Zimbabwe, and then more in the United Kingdom. He got prosthesis, and then focused on getting back to regular life. After a particularly rough day trying to maneuver in a wheelchair, Paul said that his surgeon told him, you're the sum of your choices. You're exactly who, what, and where you choose to be in life. So Paul said he focused on what was possible versus what he lost. If you look for what's possible, it generally is, is what he said. Two years after the attack, Paul said that he and his team made the longest recorded descent of the Zambezi River to date. It took three months and covered 1,600 miles. Wow. That's pretty cool. Good for him. Paul later moved to the United States and got married to the sister of a journalist on the record-setting Zambezi trip, and he wrote the book What's Left of Me and is a motivational speaker. 
Paul said his attack was an anomaly and he doesn't want anyone to be dissuaded by what happened to him on his 1996 river run. He said, my biggest counsel would be absolutely go and do it, but hook yourself up with someone who knows what they're doing out there, but by all means go out and experience it. Fair enough. I mean, it's hard to argue. I love he the spunk. Still, yeah, the spunk. He just still believes it's such a worthwhile experience. I'm sure it's unbelievably incredible. I think this is uh, where you really just give him a nice wide berth. Yeah, you got to give if him a go nice see wide him, berth. Yeah. yeah, always. Stay away. Well, to be fair, Paul was trying to give him a nice wide berth. Yeah. But there wasn't anything they could do because the third canoe just like veered off course. Yeah, I don't know what, how that happened. but I don't either. The, the whole reason that he's in this situation is because he was trying to save Evans, by the way. Yeah, yeah, he so, was being a hero. I mean, commendable. Absolutely. But God, did he go through hell. Yeah. Can you imagine? You he was swallowed by a hippo. Multiple times. Multiple times. Like, half of his body was down a hippo's throat twice. And then he was in the hippo's mouth, like, being thrashed around to the point where his lung was punctured and, like, yeah, I mean, his it's, body was crushed. Yeah, playing with him like a toy. Yeah, terrifying. It's yeah, I mean, does un- he remember the whole thing? It was yeah. like fully yes. aware the whole time. Yes. It's unbelievable what all of these people went through. And like multiple of all of them basically remembered it. Maybe not Jordan Perez, but like Rogozov remembers his surgery for sure. The guy who was pulled through the five inch hole, conscious the whole time, remembered everything. Yep. The lumberjack remembered everything. Like, he knew what happened. He kind of had to. He had to. He was so very lucid, you know? Yeah. So it's it's really crazy. But anyway, those are my freak accidents that I have for you today. Thoughts? Hey, yeah, I'm Questions, like, I'm concerns? kind of in shock. Yeah. Yeah, this is a crazy crop. I know. And most of them I wouldn't wish on anyone. No. No, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. Yeah. Not any of it. I still can't believe Jordan got decapitated. Also, it's all because of some idiot who ran a red. Who ran a red. Yeah, I know. In a dump truck. I know. Yeah. It's like, how stupid can you be? But yeah, I, I found it so interesting that I had like two decapitation stories. Like I didn't mean for that to happen, but I just was compiling these freak accidents. Then I was looking through them and I was like, oh, two yeah. decapitation when stories. When you started describing the lumberjack. That was rough. It was a lot of, um, well, how would you Clenching. Even- clenching <laughs> just a lot of descriptors about visceral that's oh, the word visceral. I'm looking sure. for. i thought you meant like your own body's reaction i mean that too i yeah. was clenchy yeah but yeah i mean that's so visceral yeah that was very very uh detailed and he was um, 74 and he, he still kept doing it yeah not to bring us back to the very disgusting thing i descri- described earlier but um Thinking about him tilting his severed head back to let the blood out of his windpipe. Yeah, like multiple headless times, Nick. nearly headless. Yeah, uh, that definitely sent shivers down my yeah. my body a couple times. <laughs> the teapot comparison makes it seem not as bad. It arguably makes it worse. It makes it worse. <laughs> uh, but anyway, those are all survival stories, and we love that so much. Anyway, let's. And on a bit of a lighter note, um, tell me something good. What's your good thing? My good thing is that I'm no longer ill. Yeah, you I were was sick, sick for a good sick. minute. Yeah, I got the flu. was yeah. not COVID. And you didn't have your flu shot, so. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. No, I'm joking. But I'm, here I'm totally we are. Joking. And um, 
it is likely the sickest I have ever been. Yeah, you were truly like feverish and shivering and unwell. For Did not leave my bed except for water yeah. and food. Um, and I was on a work trip in LA. So I was like just, in a hotel by myself all day. It's the worst part. You were looking forward to that trip and I was so jealous of that trip. And then you go and then you call me the next day and you're like, I'm sick in bed and cannot move. And I was like, yeah. oh. And I pretty much just texted everyone's like, yep, I'm sick, not coming in. Yep. See you guys, like have fun. Can't do it, sorry. I did Um. I did get better by the time I left though. And yeah. I did end up going golfing. So that was a good thing. At least there's that. But we yeah, love I'm that for you. Healthy now. Yes, good. And what's your good thing? My good thing is that I prepped all of our Thanksgiving food today with my my family. I love doing that. We listen to music and we cut mushrooms and what's the vibe? What are we? What's the playlist? We were listening to Christmas music. It was controversial yeah. yet brave because okay. it's Thanksgiving. But you are so brave. Thank you. Um, we had fun. What classics are we talking about? Jingle Bell Rock. Obviously. And I what? love a I love a Michael Bublé Christmas album. But yep. anyway, so that that was very good and fun. My other good thing is that our merch is out. Um, and we know that. And I'm going to use this moment for a very shameless self plug. Um, so if you want to check out our awesome, sick merch that we are both sick. wearing currently, yep. go to nottodaypodcast.myshopify.com. Check it out. Get yourself something or get a loved one something for Christmas, which is coming up not too far away. But anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. If you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at nontoday underscore podcast. If you would like to check out our Patreon and listen to a bunch of bonus episodes, check us out at patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. If you or anyone you know has a story of survival or something crazy and you'd like to share it with us and possibly hear it on an upcoming listeners episode, send it to knowtodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is not today podcast and a Twitter that is not today podcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three. Because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah. 